For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship, or you can uh, find a Bible on the back table that if you don't own one that's yours, go ahead and grab one of those. Uh, That's our gift to you. Or pull it up on your device or however you can have the text in front of you. It's good to have it in front of you. Uh, I said this to early service, but I saw some of them last week. I haven't seen you guys for months. So uh, it's, it's really good to be back together again and to wor- be worshiping. i um, glad you all could, could come out, um, and it's beautiful that spring is back, or coming at least. So praise God. We've spent the last several months now looking at the reality that the work of Jesus has freed us from the abuse of the law. And what I mean by abuse of the law is by thinking that you have to achieve God's smile. You've got to work hard enough to get it. If I, if I do enough, I'll, I'll, I'll have that. And what we've seen is that the gospel frees us. The gospel of Jesus simply being this, that you and I were lost in sin. Some of that look pretty. Some of us have nice, pretty ways of being independent from God. Others of us, it looked really ugly. But all of us, by nature, were lost But Jesus came to live a perfect life, which we couldn't bear the judgment due for our sin before God. And he did this as an exchange. He takes our curse, and we take his blessing. In other words, when we place our faith in Jesus, God accepts us based on his work and not ours. But that raises a logical question, right? If that is in fact the case, if God accepts us based on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and not on the basis of our life, our behaviors, our uh, works then what we do doesn't matter, right? We can go and live however we want, right? I mean, that's the logical question. As a matter of fact, and I'll end up repeating this, I have a feeling, but if you've never thought that, if that thought has never popped into your head because of the gospel, I would argue you probably haven't understood the gospel. Paul addresses this very question several times in different letters as if he expects, look, if you're understanding the gospel I'm preaching, you should at least, this should cross your mind. So what's the answer? Our text today shows us there is, in fact, a purpose for our freedom. So if you have your place in Galatians 5, let's stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 15 in Galatians 5. This is God's word for us. For you were called called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word for us. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come into this time, we ask for your grace no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus. Some of us um, are just beginning that, just trying to figure out what that would mean, investigating, in fact, what does that path look like? Others of us have been doing it longer than I've been alive. Uh, 
But Lord, we all need grace today to follow you and to hear from you. Pray that your spirit would be active to give us repentance and faith. For all of this comes from you. So Lord, as you are sovereign and and gracious over this time, we will give you praise. Lord, let Christ and his work come out. Because he alone holds the words of eternal life. And Lord, as we lift up Jesus today, we pray that you would draw all of us to yourself. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, when I was 15, I was chomping at the bit because I had endured 15 years of being beholden to the whims of another, needing to constantly wait on the availability of others for that most basic of needs, transportation. Uh, As the day of my 16th birthday approached, I eagerly awaited release from my adolescent captivity. Uh, And when I turned 16, not only did I get my license, but I went to a completely honest used car dealership where I purchased my first ride, a 1985 Dodge Colt that may have, in fact, looked like this. Within months, it would have had a stereo system in it that was worth more than the vehicle and made it feel like it was about to fall apart uh, as I drove down the street. Uh, beautiful. Uh, you see, freedom, when, when I was 15, was freedom from being beholden to another. As soon as I got this little baby, I was free. I was living large. I was very free until I realized that I had to pay for it. I was free from being beholden to the whims of another, but now I was, my, my freedom was for earning a paycheck, which I did faithfully at Burger King every day after school from four to close until that was paid for. Look, for weeks we have heard that we are free from slavery to the law, right? We are free from being beholden to, to needing to work to achieve God's smile. But now we are turning to another point, that our freedom is not just from the law as a means of our justification, of our being made right before God, a means of our flourishing, but also from another bondage, one more insidious and harder to see, and then eventually that freedom is for something completely different. So the way we're going to look at this text this morning is in two ways. We're going to look at a purposeful freedom, and we're going to look then at a freed purpose, okay? A purposeful freedom and a freed purpose. The outline's in your bulletin if that's helpful. Let's start with that purposeful freedom with a different starting point. Look at verse 13. Paul says, For you are called to freedom. Okay, now stop there. Paul's reiterating something. He does this every once in a while in his letters. He'll have started a main point, and then he'll linger for a little bit on something, and then he'll kind of restate something to kind of get our attention back there. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then he starts talking about how that freedom is from uh, needing to achieve something for God. That God isn't looking for good, that he's looking for dependent. Therefore, there's no way we can be good enough. And like I said in, our, in the introduction, that draws up the question. If my behaviors don't count for anything before God, if, if my behaviors don't matter in that sense, then doesn't that mean I can do whatever I want? Doesn't that mean that then my behaviors don't matter? Let me say it again. I said it before, let me say it again. If you haven't at least thought this. This hasn't been a, a, a thought that has passed through your head in, reply, in, in response to the preaching of the gospel. I don't think you're understanding the implications of the gospel. 
Paul answers that question enough in his letters to assume that this is the kind of question that should arise if the gospel is actually being preached. If, if that question has never crossed your mind, uh, maybe, maybe you haven't heard the gospel. Maybe, in fact, maybe I'm not entirely preaching it. But if you have had this question, then I would argue you're hearing rightly. But Paul says this. He says, he says this, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, two things about this. First, this notion of the flesh, right? Uh, Paul talks about the flesh a lot. And in our kind of cultural moment, with the presuppositions we have about Christianity, we can often think that what he means when he says flesh is something earthy, that, this, that something having to do with our bodies, that, that it's, it's, it, it's kind of being human. Be easy to think that, okay? However, that's not what he means. Paul doesn't hate the body. Flesh doesn't mean the body. Flesh, in Paul's writings, is always set in contrast to the spirit. And by the spirit, he doesn't mean your inner self, right? Spiritual in the Bible does not mean having some random sense of the transcendent. Spiritual in the Bible, or, or, or feeling like you have some random sense of God. Spiritual in the Bible is something empowered, controlled, and infused by the spirit of God. That is what makes you spiritual. Having the spirit of God to dwell in you. And Paul always contrasts the flesh with the life characterized by sin. The flesh is a life characterized by sin and not by the Spirit of God. Okay? The second thing to see is this word opportunity. Now, in the original, that can mean several different things. It can mean pretext or it can mean opportunity, like our translation says. But the, the nuance that I think Paul is trying to get at here is, is that it can also mean the logical starting point. So when he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity, what he means is don't use your freedom, the fact that Christ has set you free as a logical starting point to then live a life that is governed and characterized by sin. He gets that our logic would normally lead us in that direction, right? If I'm freed from performance and I'm freed from the consequences of my bad behaviors, that means I can pretty much do whatever I want. My behaviors don't matter anymore. But he says, Paul says this logic is flawed, so then freedom is something different than what we would think. It's certainly one from one thing. It's from one thing, but it isn't for what we would logically think. And that brings us to a different bondage. Look down at verse 13. Look at the rest of that verse. Paul says, don't use your freedom as a logical starting point for the flesh, but instead serve one another through love. All right, now this is cool, so listen close. Paul is a master wordsmith. Paul per- particularly chooses words that he thinks are going to be the most poignant for what he's trying to do. And he's crafted something amazing here that can be lost in translation. First, uh, Paul's setting up a very strong contrast. In grammar, we call it a, a strong adversative. In, in our language, in English, you have one word. It's, called, it's, it's the word but. Don't do this, but do that. Right? In Greek, there's several of them, and they, they have different forces. This is the strongest one that he can use. So what it means is that this is the strongest contrast you can use, far from using your freedom as the logical starting point of a life of sin. Instead, do this. And the, the, the this is literally, through love, slave for one another. You're free to be a slave. You're free to go be a slave for another. This is awesome. You see, we think... You and I think, again, because this is just the air we breathe. We think that being free means I can do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. Kind of an unfettered, uh, unfettered autonomy. And Paul says that our freedom from sin, freedom from the law, isn't for us. It's for us to use for others. And this is one of a bunch of passages in the New Testament that are kind of described as the one another passages. 
It's about, it, it, it's about how we should do things for one another. They are places where the community, that is the church, um, is given as the normative place for where Christian life is to be lived. And Paul is saying that the purpose of your freedom, the purpose of your freedom is so that you can be free from you to serve us. So that you can be freed from you to serve us. You are free from bondage to your need to earn your way to God. Free from uh, your need to work for your own flourishing so that you can, through love, pursue the flourishing of others. Serve others. Be enslaved to others. Now, one thing I have to say about this is that that word enslaved, that word, you notice all of your translations. You can flip through translations. You get your device, flip through a bunch of translations. They all say serve, don't they? You know why? Because they're all written for Americans. And we have a serious cultural issue with this, with this word slavery. And the reason is, is because of the, the craziness and sin in our nation's infancy and the devastating effects of it to this day. So we need to understand something. What Paul is not saying is go sell yourself as a slave towards other, to other Christians, right? The book of Philemon, he says pretty much the opposite. Okay, he destroys the institution itself in that book. What he is saying, though, is take up the attitude of a slave towards others. Slaves are concerned not with what's going on with them, but what's going on with the one that they serve. And so Paul is saying, take up that attitude. He'll say the same thing in another letter, book of Philippians, chapter 2, specifically pointing at the fact that you need to do this as Jesus did. And Paul concludes this section with an explanation about fulfilling and devouring. Look down at verses 14 and 15. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right, now, a couple things about this. One word. Obviously, Paul knows that love your neighbor as yourself is more than one word. Okay? That's not what he's talking about there. In the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the commandments of God, are called uh, the words. The ten words, or, or, or even later, the commandments as a whole are understood as the words um, in the original. We don't call them that, we call them commandments. It's a kind of a flexible uh, definition there. And so that's what he means when he says word, one word. Uh, but if you've been listening to other sermons in this series, this verse is going to strike you as funny, right? Because Paul's been saying if you try and keep, if you try and do part of the law, you're obligated to keep the whole thing. If, he's argued that it's actually impossible to do the law. But here, though, he calls us to fulfill it by loving your neighbor as yourself. Paul suddenly go like crazy on us? Suddenly jumped into a different personality? What, what is this? What is it, Paul? Are we supposed to do the law or not? Am I supposed to fulfill the law to get God to smile on me? Or, or, or can I not do that? Well, here's what this is about. Uh, Stephen Westerholm is a, a New Testament scholar, argues convincingly that, or at least was one of the first to argue this convincingly, that there is a difference in Paul's writings between doing the law and fulfilling it. There's a difference between trying to do the law and to fill it. When Paul talks about doing the law, which is what he said in Galatians 3, when he talks about doing the law, he means depending on it for your status before God. Your activity, your action, the things you do. Doing the law. Fulfilling it, though, goes deeper than just doing it. Right? Some of us struggle with doing the law to keep our standing before God. But fulfilling it goes even deeper. It goes to not just picking and choosing. It, it goes to getting the whole point the whole point of the law, it goes deeper than just doing. Paul is saying the whole purpose of the law, the whole purpose of all of these commands towards others is for us to love them, love others as we do ourselves. And as I say that, some of us are probably thinking, okay, so does that mean, or Rick, that, that probably means then that I need to learn how to love myself 
And as I learn how to love myself, then I'll learn how to love others. No, in fact. Uh, The Bible presupposes that we love ourselves. Now, some of you may be arguing with me, like, Rick, you don't know my life. I actually, I don't like myself very much. I hate myself. You misunderstand what, what loving means, I think. Here's why. Everyone, everyone works for their own flourishing. Everyone. There's not a person on this planet who does not make choices throughout their day based on what they think will make them flourish. We all do that which we think will help us flourish. Now, granted, some of those ideas have been twisted by sin, twisted by disorders, twisted by our psychology or abuse, or they've been shaped in a certain way. However, it is still the truth. It is true whether you think you will flourish by chasing flawless morality, or whether you will flourish by chasing the almighty dollar, or whether you think you will flourish by keeping away your negative feelings by harming yourself, or if you will flourish by controlling your world by restricting how much you eat. We all do that which we think will help us flourish. In our minds, broken though they are, we always pursue that which will help us flourish, that which will keep us from destruction. Paul says the entire law is summed up and fulfilled in seeking that for other people. Seeking that for others. That is the whole point. You know, you and I tend to think that God has set up a kind of arbitrary rules, as if he's some kind of goofy dictator who decided Friday will be Hawaiian shirt Friday, and whoever doesn't wear a Hawaiian shirt is going to be thrown in the clink. Like, that is not what God's rules are about. God's commands have been given as our creator so that we will flourish. They are, they are, they are a reflection of who he is, and they are a guide to show us this is what you are made for. You were made to be a life giver, not a life taker. You were made to be a a contributor, not someone who takes from others. You were made to to be a promise keeper, not someone who breaks troth. We were made to flourish as we seek to see others flourish. But Paul says this, this is what we were made for. But if you keep biting and devouring one another, watch lest you consume one another. All right, this seems strange, but follow me. All these words, bite, devour, consume. They are animalistic words. When you think about those words, think about National Geographic, right? You're you're watching the beautiful gazelle prance across the savannah, and then suddenly, here comes the cheetah. And he's flying across, and he jumps on and grabs it back, and all of a sudden, the shot cuts to later, when he's like, it's ripping, and the skin's tearing, you're like, oh! It was so cute, and you killed it. And that's what, that's what Paul is talking about here. Biting, devouring, consuming. These are animal words. These are words in the, in, the, in the first century in Greek would have been used for describing how animals do what they do in the arena. Why is Paul using that? It's very particular. But to understand it, we've got to get the biblical story. Because you see, this, in the biblical story, humanity wasn't created the same as everything else. God created all of the rest of animal kind, and then he took humanity, created in, in, in what theology we call the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Nothing else in all of creation, though glorious and beautiful and majestic, none of it is created like a human being. And I don't care whether that human being is a couple of centimeters big, has special needs, or is older than the hills. Image of God. We were made for something different. 
Paul uses this language here that is directly from watching animals, wild animals in the arena, because his point is this. If you seek one another's flourishing, you will act like humanity as we were made for. That's the freedom we were made for. If not, you will end up like animals. Like animals, not humans. Do you see that? But see, the crazy thing about this is, is that the kind of behavior that Paul's talking about isn't what he's been talking about. He's been talking about behavior of the law-obsessed variety. Got to do this. Got to keep this rule. Got to keep this rule. Got to do these things and God will like me. That's not what he's talking about here. Instead, he's talking about pursuing our own selfishness. When we are stuck pursuing our own selfish desires, chasing the fulfillment of every whim that enters into our hearts, Paul says we end up biting and tearing each other like a pack of wolves. We destroy each other like animals. You and I were made for freedom, but it was a freedom to be human as our creator intended us to be. Now, that's a purposeful freedom. I want to speak in a bit more application by talking about a freed purpose. First with this notion of slavery in two forms. Okay, Like I said, up to this point... It's almost like the entire letter so far. Paul's been talking about a specific kind of slavery. Slavery to law-keeping, right? He said that to seek to use the law for your status before God will mean that you were enslaved. You remember why? Like That, that was really important. First, because you have to keep doing it, right? If you, if you think God's smile upon me is, is going to be completely connected to how well I'm doing with the rules... You have to keep it up because you know that you've never done enough. There's a kind of a a psychological insecurity that attaches itself to those trying to be moral enough for God. Because they know intuitively they haven't done enough. When do you know? How do you know? But secondly, it's not just because of that. It's also because you're totally focused on yourself. You're all about what you need to do for you, right? You do good things for you. You... You serve others for you. You worship God for you. You are enslaved. But there's another form of slavery that Paul is talking about, and it's the one that he brings out here in this passage. See? Verse one, chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Then he talked about slavery to the law. Now he's talking about slavery to the self. This one's so hard for us to understand because of our, our, different, our, our definition of freedom, right? Our definition of freedom is that, that kind of autonomy, complete autonomy. At the end of the day, what we end up saying is, I will only flourish, right? Flourishing, human flourishing and salvation, they kind of go together. If, I will only flourish, I will only be happy, I will only be able to be authentic if I'm able to pursue my life according to whatever desires come out of my heart. The problem is, friends, our desires, like the law, is a restless lover. Just never content. They never tell us we've arrived. You know this, right? I know some of you have tried this. And you, you pursue, something pops in your heart, you're like, I will be happy if I can go do that. And you go do it, and you're like, didn't last. What about this? I'll go do that. And then... Didn't do it either. What a, your desires are restless. They're never enough. And so we're always left chasing them. Whether those desires are, are sexual or, or economic or, or relational or what have you. 
And you see, we tend to think that these two are like different extremes. We have the exceedingly moral person who feels enslaved to the law. And we have the exceedingly uh, relativistic person who's kind of like, I do what I want when I want to do it. And we go, oh, those are just, those are, those are extremes. Which will we be? No, no, no. Paul says, you don't understand. They're just different varieties of the same issue. They're both seeking salvation independent of God. They're both sin. They both show our lostness. They look different. right? They look very different on the outside. One moral, the other relativistic. One tends to be a little more conservative. One's a little more progressive. But they're both enslaved. One is enslaved to a moral code for themselves. The other is enslaved to their desires for themselves. (laughs) They're both enslaved to themselves. Paul's point, though is that the Christian gospel is something different altogether, and it frees us to love, okay? The moralist chases morality thinking that it's going to secure God's approval. The relativist chases desires thinking it will secure their own satisfaction. The gospel says neither will find it because both can only be found in Jesus. See, we were made for a relationship with God. We will be restless. All of us will be restless until we are reconciled with him. All of us. Chasing our desires won't get us there. But... We've, we've sinned, we are separated from God, and, and so we, we can't just simply be reconciled. So, says the moralist, see, I have to be good, and if I can be good enough, then I can heal that separation. But the problem is, you can't be good enough. Your problem isn't that you aren't moral, it's that you're independent from God. So what we couldn't do, God did in Jesus. What God never asked us to do, he accomplished in Jesus. He took on humanity to live the perfect life. We couldn't. He died to bear our sins. Now, here's where this connects. He offers us union with him by faith. Union with him by faith. Here's what that means. Uh, we, we place our faith in him, and his perfect life is united to ours. So it becomes our life. And his sin-bearing death becomes united to ours. So we have died for sin. So we are reconciled to God apart from what we do. We don't have to strive for it. But we are also united to the one who, was, who we were made for so we can actually find rest apart from our desires. And when this happens, we are absolutely freed to love others. Here's why. If your standing before God is not wrapped up in what you have done or what you will do, you don't have to defend and protect your record. You can give yourself to see others flourish. If your restlessness has been answered apart from you chasing your desires, then, friends, your desires cannot offer you anything that you don't already have. And so you can spend your energy, instead of chasing your desires, serving others. And the gospel is the only thing that frees us to love. Without it, we will unavoidably be working for us. Unavoidably. We aren't... We, we aren't loving others as we love ourselves. We aren't actually fulfilling the whole point of the law. We're trying to do the law. We're trying to get something out of life. I'm trying to accomplish my own salvation by seeking my desires or by seeking a morality. And that leads us to one another. Okay, listen. Because as, as we've seen our bondages, as we've understood that Christ has freed us, then what? Now what? What does it look like to serve one another through love? This is an important point. Because Paul, in this passage, isn't talking ideas. He's talking practice. What are we called to do? When he says, you know, serve one another, slave for one another, that's not just theoretical. He wants us to do something in light of these things. 
And this phrase, like, like I mentioned earlier, one another, huge in Paul's writings. Christians are called to serve the world, right? We talk about that in, in, in our normal commissioning that we do when we're not in a, in a church season. We talk about, um, let us go forth to serve the world. It's an important thing, right? Paul's going to say a little later in Galatians. Do good to all. So that's the world. But especially the household of faith. One anothering is about how we serve and, and, and slave for one another. Our first priority is to build a community that is one anothering according to the gospel. So what does that look like? What will that look like here in this place? Let me give a, let me give a couple of thoughts. A few thoughts, okay? Very practical, right? Uh, to, to serve another, to slave for another, and slave for one another through love means laying down those other things we serve, those other things we slave for, and doing so for the sake of each other. For some of us in that room, uh, that's going to be our money, right? Because we... We aren't generous. We, we don't follow Christ's command to, to give because we're convinced that our resources will help us flourish. Whether that is by um, securing our life, we have enough, our savings account's enough, our investments are enough, I'll always be safe. Or whether it is, it is um, if I just get more stuff, if I can just spend my money and finally get that much so I can finally get those things, I'll be satisfied. We are, at the, at the bottom of it, terrified of not having money or convinced it will flourish us. And so to serve one another through love may look like you beginning to obey Jesus in generosity. Or it may just mean increasing your giving. For others of us, though, it's not our money. It's probably more likely our time. Because we want the world to revolve around us. We work hard. And you do. And you work hard, and you're like, I, I work hard, and so I want to... You know, my time is mine then. I, I work all day. I want my evenings. I want my weekends. Sunday is my day of rest. I don't, I just want to come in, hear some music, listen to that loudmouth talk for a little while, and then go home and, and, and rest. So, for those of us that connect to that, serving one another through love, we'll be giving ourselves to the community by serving it. By doing things like coming in in the morning on Sunday morning to set these things up so that we can actually have some place to sit. It might mean welcoming people to the door so that others, everyone who's coming in feels like they are, they are welcome in this place and known and we are glad they are here because we are. It may mean, um, uh, you know, using other gifts that may have yet to be discovered or it may be giving your time to serve the littlest and help, most helpless of us by just sitting and holding kids in the nursery providing a safe and loving environment so that church is for them always a safe place. Still others, though, God is calling us to a larger service, one that includes giving a lot. It might include giving our home, giving our home to to children who have no home, children in foster care or adopting. Or it may mean giving our life, giving our lives to mentor a, a teen mom who is just learning about Jesus for the first time and has no one around her who can help her see how to navigate life from the perspective of the gospel. If any of those things are, are God is using any of those things right now to just kind of ping in your head, come talk to me because I can point you in the direction of someone who can help you in all of those things. But let me tell you one universal, okay? 
in, our, in the culture that we live in, in the isolated technological thing where, where we are more about our status and the likes we get on our selfies than about other people. Let me give you one thing that will be a way to serve other people more than anything else. Curiosity. Showing curiosity to others. Coming into a room like this and seeking another person out to sincerely ask, how are you? What's going on in your life? And not using it as just a means to turn it back around and talk about what's going on with you. Oh, that's great that you did this, but look at me. Like, that's not what this is about. But actually seeking to know them, to ask them how they are, how you can pray for them instead of always wanting to be pursued. We serve through love, friends, the perfectly secure love of God given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. What does, that, what does freedom mean then? The New Testament answers that question by saying, That we are freed to be who we were meant to be as humans, reconciled to God, dependent on him, and then out of the abundance that he supplies, seeking the flourishing of others. That is the purpose of our freedom. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we just pray that your spirit would do what only he can do, which is take the falling words of a fallible man and transform them by his power into a life, the life-changing message of the gospel. Lord, you are the Savior. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You are no miser with it. And so we pray that you would give it, whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time as we are coming into this place needing to be renewed in our faith and our repentance. Would you work in us and help us to that end? And then send us out as those who seek to serve one another in love and through love, that love that is ours that we cannot lose because we did nothing to get it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.